It's Monday the 24th of February and this is the Monocle Minute. I'm Carlotta Rabello. Today, US President Donald Trump touches down in India for his first official visit to the country. But what impact will it have on foreign policy? There's again a lot to be done in terms of aligning the two economies, which would take more than a friendly conversation between two leaders with broadly similar, fairly nationalistic worldviews. Then a look ahead to the final week of campaigning in Israel's third election in a year. Could this finally be it? And why Adelaide might be the most car-friendly city in Australia. I'm Carlotta Rebello in London. The Monocle Minute starts now. U.S. President Donald Trump lands in India today for his first official visit to the country, where he will also be taking part in a rally with Prime Minister Narendra Modi. I'm joined now by Jacob Parakiles, the U.S. affairs specialist. Uh, Jacob, let's start by just examining how significant this trip is for Donald Trump. I don't think it's a particularly significant trip for Trump in the grand scheme of things. The U.S. and India have a a complicated relationship. At the moment, the ties between the two countries are fairly good, bolstered by what seems to be a strong personal relationship between Prime Minister Modi and President Trump. And that's also backed up by what is, for Donald Trump, a relatively high approval rating in India. So I think there's something to be said in terms of him visiting a country where he feels welcome, where he will be given a more friendly public greeting than he's gotten in some other parts of the world. But the security situation between the two countries, the political relationship has a very complicated historical context. During the Cold War, India was not aligned. Uh, The U.S. frequently viewed it as being friendlier to the Soviet Union than it wanted it to be. And those suspicions haven't entirely gone away, even though we're obviously in a very different historical moment. So there's a lot of work to be done in terms of making the two countries closer. Trump will be trying to sign a trade deal with India, but such a deal, if it's going to have any significance, would have to go through Congress. And of course, at the moment, the relationship between Congress and Trump particularly the House of Representatives, is not particularly good. So I don't expect there to be any massive breakthrough from this visit. It's interesting that you mentioned the trade deal there. Uh, I'm interested there to know, uh, will then China's influence in the region be one of the topics that these two will have to talk about? I think he'll probably bring up China with Modi. There's a a very different relationship. Both countries have complicated and not entirely friendly relations with China, but India lives in China's neighborhood and the U.S. doesn't. So there's a fundamentally different perception of the balance of interest there. Nevertheless, I think there's something to be said for security cooperation. Trump will probably push this home. There's something to be said for increasing economic ties by way of mutual bolstering. But there's, again, a lot be done in terms of aligning the two economies, which would take more than a friendly conversation between two leaders with broadly similar, fairly nationalistic worldviews. I think it would require a great deal of time and investment. And I don't know that Trump or his administration is going to put the kind of effort or has the kind of time or focus necessary to really build up that relationship over the long term to make the US-India relationship a, a meaningful counterbalance to China. What are we expecting at the end of this trip then? We we can't forget that there's an election playing back home. Will he return to the US with some momentum? I think he'll be able to come back with a certain amount of momentum, but I don't think it will make a fundamental difference either to his trajectory in terms of 
his public opinion polling or his relationship to the U.S. electorate, to his opponents who are uh, running against each other in the Democratic primary. Foreign visits, unless something incredibly dramatic happens, unless a, a peace accord is signed or there's some other major issue resolved, which is a, a very small fraction of them, tend to not occupy the news cycle for more than a day or two at a time. So he might receive a day or two of relatively friendly press. I don't think it's going to make a major change to his his overall trajectory. The U.S. affairs specialist Jacob Arakilis, thank you. And now to Adelaide, the Australian city that might just be the most car-friendly metropolis down under. Monocle's Nick Manis reports. According to a new report commissioned by Adelaide City Hall, the South Australian capital has the most and cheapest street parking of any major metropolis in Australia. This abundance of car bays chews into the space available for bike lanes and footpaths and leaves locals more inclined to shirk public transport for their own four-wheeler. The report findings are set to inform the city's transport strategy and will likely encourage the development of public transport, bike and pedestrian infrastructure. However, it remains to be seen whether it will change the minds of a number of pro-car city councillors, who recently criticised a proposed cross-city bikeway, citing concerns over reduced access to on-street parking. This is despite the city having some 42,700 car bays. Perth, a city of similar size, has just under 6,000. It seems that numbers don't talk in Adelaide, but car bays do. Nick Manis, thank you. This is the Monocle Minute. Today, Israel enters its final week of campaigning ahead of a general election. So, what can we expect when the country heads to the polls? Here's Monocle's business editor, Venetia Rainey. Could this finally be the one? Israel is set to hold its third election in a year, a week from now. The hope is to finally break the political deadlock that has evolved between incumbent Likud Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and his rival, Blue and White Party leader Benny Gantz. Yet recent polling suggests that neither has managed to swing enough voters their way to radically change the result of previous elections. The country is now entering uncharted territory. Having yet another election six months after the last is unheard of, But even more unusual are the circumstances surrounding the man at the centre of the storm. Netanyahu is facing three separate corruption charges and will have to appear in court in mid-March, right in the middle of the expected coalition negotiations. He is the first sitting Prime Minister in Israel's history to be indicted, but it has done little to dent his popularity. He's dismissed the whole affair as an attempted coup and in December won a party leadership poll by a landslide. As part of his bid to clinch a fourth term, he is desperately hunting for allies. Most of the usual smaller parties have refused to go into government with a prime minister in the middle of criminal proceedings, so he's had to look further right than even he might normally. Last week he announced over 6,000 new homes in contested East Jerusalem in a bid to garner support. That's territory that's considered occupied under international law. He has been in power for over a decade and is clearly bent on staying as long as possible. Consequences be damned. The upshot, sadly, is that Israel is more divided than ever. My thanks to Venetia Rainey. Elsewhere on today's agenda. 
Today marks the start of Losar, or New Year, in Tibet. It's an ancient tradition, one that predates the arrival of Buddhism to the nation. Following the 80th anniversary of the enthronement of the Dalai Lama, which was marked on Saturday, it's certain that Chinese authorities will be paying close attention. Historically, this time of year is characterized by political tension, as spirituality converges with civil discontent. 51 years ago, it culminated in the Tibetan uprising, which saw the Dalai Lama exiled from the country. A Belgian court will decide today whether former Catalonian president and leader of the Catalan independence movement, Carlos Puigdemont, should face extradition back to Spain. Currently in self-imposed exile in Brussels, this is the third time Puigdemont has faced charges of misuse of public funds and sedition from European courts since the 2017 independence referendum. The ruling is a test of EU rules on arrest warrants, and either way the decision could set legal precedents. To reject extradition is to question the impartiality of another member state's justice system. Approving it will lead to accusations of conforming to politically motivated charges. Read more about today's stories by subscribing to our daily email bulletin at our website. I'm Carlotta Rebello. The Monocle Minute returns on Tuesday.